tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to the incredible concept artist and illustrator, Terrell Whitlatch, who is responsible for the designs of Jar Jar, Sebulba, and so, so many more in The Phantom Menace. I am just thrilled and honored to be able to share her story with you all, and I hope you enjoy it as much as you'll quickly be able to see that I did. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 71, New Numbering System, Terrell Whitlatch. I was doing a lot of research leading up to it with the the old Phantom Menace books, and I I remember because I grew up with first the special editions, and then Phantom Menace was the first new Star Wars movie for me, and the lead up to, to those movies... And the behind the scenes stuff that came with them is really what like kind of inspired me through the year. And uh-huh. you're in Anatomy of the Dewback. You're in all of these books. Just seeing these <laughs> images again, just like brings back just incredible sense memories of, of seeing them for oh. the first time and, and being so inspired by them. So this is a, a huge honor. I appreciate it. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your kind <laughs> words. <laughs> well, well, before even Star Wars and your incredible work in movies and, and with Lucasfilm, I would love to first just talk about your inspirations and what really led you down this route. I know both of your parents had kind of uh, interesting inspirations directly to what you, you're currently doing, and I'd love to talk more about that. Oh, sure. Well, my, my mother um, was an artist. Well, she's, she's still living. She actually, she's living with me. Um, and she's still an artist. She still does cartoons for local newspapers and things like that. So that's, that's kind of cool. Um, and my father, he um, had been through medical school. And he taught high school biology and chemistry, very interested in science education. Um, he didn't go back to medicine because he loved the Navy. It's like he took this gap year to join the Navy, see the world, and just fell in love with the Navy. So when he wasn't on the the carrier, the Ticonderoga, stationed in Alameda, California, and partly in Pensacola, Florida, uh, he was teaching high school biology and chemistry. And his love of science was just something that infused my childhood. So there was art on one hand and science on the other. And he was a native Floridian. So he met my mother when he was stationed out in Alameda, California, and she was at UC Berkeley. So it was like, to a kid, gee, my dad came all the way from Florida. Wow, what an adventure. And then we would go back coast to coast because of that, which is great. California, fun. Florida, more fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was pretty cool. And I had my all my cousins back back in Florida were pretty crazy. They're really, really nice um, as well, but had a really goofy, goofy sense of humor. We're constantly telling scary stories and ghost stories in the South with swamps and stories about the evil hook man and the people that would get you in the night. It was just great. And at the same time, I was about six years old. That's when the original Dark Shadows came out. And Mm -hmm. happily, my mother let me watch it. And so all that cool stuff kind of for my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, I mean, those inspirations, those initial, uh, the love of nature and the love of animals and the love of the world around us, uh-huh. how did you turn that into a career? How did you kind of go into illustration and especially um, your very specific type of, you know, world building and anatomy and creating new animal species just by drawing? Well, I think it started early on in just being exposed to animals as a very young child. My was very fortunate in that my mother's father 
had a horse ranch. And the first furry animal I ever touched was a horse. This is an awesome animal right away. So I was fascinated by horses. And I was fascinated by birds because birds are everywhere. You can see birds everywhere. Uh, I think that was, that just got my imagination. And my father was always taking our family. I had a younger sister um, by then. Always taking our family to the local zoos and on the weekends and to the um, science museums, specifically these were in San Francisco and Oakland, California. And I was just like, when I saw like this big articulated skeletons of Allosaurus at the California County of Sciences and the big alligator pit and all that stuff, it was like, ah. And then they had halls of taxidermed, really nicely taxidermed African animals and North American mammals. I was like, oh, my goodness. I was so, like, into it. Um, and then my grandfather's horses and all. And through that, I was exposed to the work of very good scientific illustrators. In fact, mm-hmm. the, the earliest one, I, the one that really informed my imagination and my childhood and all my drawing is he's still living, an artist named Jay Maternus. And he did the wonderful murals of Cenozoic mammals for the Smithsonian Institution. That is was like, yes, that is what I want to do for a living. And you know, prehistoric animals, real animals, it's not a real far step from animals that are like in Star Wars or Dragonheart or Star Trek or I mean just just a little nudge and you're there. <laughs> um, but I, I, tra- I uh, majored in zoology uh, with um, because my, my goal was to be a natural science illustrator, say, for Smithsonian or natural, National Geographic, that type of work. I, as far as the film industry, the animation industry, that was like this. I didn't intend on doing that. It just happened. Uh, so while I still had a little bit of college money, this is back in the 80s when that was still possible to not go into huge debt and for college, um, I took a couple semesters, a couple of local art schools in the San Francisco Bay Area. And for one of them, um, there was, in order to graduate, because all my zone units, they transferred, so I didn't have that much you know, to make up. They fast-tracked me into the senior program. And um, there, in order to graduate, you had to participate in a spring, spring show, Academy of Art College, I think, what had been accredited now it's this gigantic art school in San Francisco called Academy of Art University. But it was pretty small back then. and hadn't been accredited at that point, but they had this annual spring show. And art directors would come and look at these students' work and such. So I was hired right out of school by Lucasfilm because they, it was because I had um, artwork, space aliens or mythical animals or aliens from Mars or things like that. They're all real animals. They were like wildlife illustrations, things like that. But they hired me because I understood the anatomy, and that's all they cared about. They said, you, you understand the anatomy, feature design is a piece of cake. And I'll have to say that is true because drawing real animals is a lot harder than imaginary animals because imaginary animals, you know, who's to say that that dragon is drawn incorrectly? There aren't any dragons that exist on our planet Earth. But tigers exist. You draw a tiger incorrectly, you know right away how bad it is. <laughs> so, 
but they hired me on the strength of my real animals. Your earliest work was like LucasArts and uh, mm-hmm. the video games. I know yeah. I, The yeah. Dig, for yeah. instance. Yeah. LucasArts games back in the day are just so they don't get talked about very often anymore but they are just so imaginative and so full of life really and uh, i love that that's where you you first started yeah and it's cool because the dig was a steven spielberg project and he's such a Mm -hmm. wonderful storyteller and his his movies his films are just so creative i mean all the way you think about like jaws or you think about you know night gallery all that early stuff you know it's like super cool (laughs) (laughs) He's <laughs> not locked into anything. And then, of course, right. Indiana Jones collaboration with George Lucas. He's not locked into anything. Just a great storyteller. And, yeah, it is fun. It was a fun project. Uh, and then you came back to Lucasfilm uh, for Jumanji, uh, specifically, and, and got brought back by Doug Chang. Yes. Um, who, of course, you know, you and him, pretty much at the beginning, you, him, and Ian McCaig especially, yeah. defining what the prequels would feel like and look like. Um, what was it like being collaborative with him, especially? And what did you guys learn together? Because initially it was the, you two were the first in the episode one art department, right? So yeah. um, what was that first look at the prequels and how did you approach it? Well, so it was, first of all, Doug and I were both like blown, like, blown away. Like, uh, I mean, but um, George Lucas is a very, probably nice person. Um, he was one of the nicest directors I ever worked for. And he would, he was really funny in a real sweet way. You could, I mean, the jokes he would tell you, tell your kids, but they're still funny. That's the way you know it's a good joke. <laughs> Everybody can appreciate it. <laughs> anyway, so he brought that, that that kind of fun, ironic bit of imag- you know, imagination and storytelling, which is what you see in, obviously, Star Wars Episode Four through Six, and I think with the prequels, too, because that, those were his babies, and you, you see... George's personality come out for better or for worse. You know, just let's just have a good time in outer space. <laughs> um, but it was it was very very um, at first both Doug and I think but we felt a little bit exhilarated and intimidated because there's this huge responsibility on just two people to basically get that foundation going. And then about a couple months later, Ian came in, and I would say yeah, the, between the three of us. Um, the look and feel, the aesthetic. We and as we, you know, with anything, as you go along, you get more comfortable, and you feel okay. Um, we're getting good feedback. Um, he's George is liking what we're doing. He's really nice to us. He does, you know, <laughs> if, you know if, he, if he likes what we've done, he gives us a little stamp that says good. If he really likes it, he'll have a stamp that says fabuloso. But he never says, oh yeah, this is awful. He never ever right. did that. So we were feeling pretty happy about that and he gave us a lot of blue sky uh-huh. um so i would say if we stopped and thought too much about this responsibility on our shoulders i think that would have been ah, at paralysis but we didn't have time to too much time to stop and think about that we just had to get certain amount of artwork done each by each friday which is generally when he would come up to have the meetings although once in a while he would stop. of course it's his place he can do what he wants <laughs> um <laughs> So that's what that, it was very it was very heady very heady feeling and then as as the script started becoming more developed and there were that's when we started adding artists like Benton Jew and um, David Namigad to start working on on storyboards and every so often as sometimes all of us would be working on storyboards if it if required that I usually try to get out of it because I wasn't the best at drawing vehicles but. <laughs> 
every every once in a while. Yeah, you know, I, I did it too. So <laughs> you were able to kind of learn the Star Wars universe in a very hands-on way with the special editions, right? And, yes. and inserting new aliens and new creatures in these classic movies, the Cantina aliens you helped oh, okay. redesign for for the new things, and and then of course the Dubak, uh, and then people in Jabba's palace. Uh, what was it like first? tinkering with the original trilogy and then did you take any of those learnings of the world building of star wars and then incorporate that into your work in the prequels yes the very first thing with the do back and this is it started when i was still when i was at industrial light and magic and you know i was working i think i was working on Dragonheart, working on Dragonheart, and storyboarding the first budweiser clydesdale commercial so mm-hmm. those were the two projects i was working on and i think it was mark morris Art director, one of the art directors there, um, he came by and said, I have a little job, a little assignment for you, Terrell, a little assignment for you. He gave me this little tiny, little tiny, like, screenshot of the head of a do-back, because that's all that existed. That was all right. left. Everything else had dissolved into the mishmash of foam latex and, right. and, and other things. So, would you be so kind as to reconstruct <laughs> back for us? And there right. was, a, um, you know, there was maybe a couple all he had was like a, a clip from the movie. I mean, a, a snap from the movie and a little tiny, like potion stamp image. I said, can you just please reconstruct this, this, the do back, you know, the big lizard that the, you know, storm people's ride in the first, in the first movie. He said, okay, fine. Sure. This will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> now I see must get commercial done. Must get commercial done. Right. <laughs> All right. And, uh, so I, um, I drew it with a side view. And they asked me to do the top view too. That way they could see how wide the animal was. I said, "Well, okay." And um, I'll, say, I'll, I'll just pretend I'm reconstructing this dinosaur. Right. It's, a, it's from the it's for the Smithsonian Institution. I'll do it to that level. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I did that. And um, Mark Morris comes by and says, "Oh, thank you very much. Okay, that commercial. <laughs> get that commercial done." Right. <laughs> and uh, then. About a week later, Mark comes by and says, oh, you know that little do-back you did? I said, yeah, uh-huh. The ranch really likes it. I said, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Then a minute later, I realized the ranch met George Lucas. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm happy for the rest of my life. That's great. And then that afternoon, Dennis swung by, you know, and I was fearfully new, so I just was getting to know who everybody was. Uh, and I said, good work. And I go, oh, I'm really, really happy. <laughs> so I think, okay, you know, that's that's good. Then a couple months later, then we find out, okay, George is going to be um, reopening that franchise again. And of course, everybody's like, oh man, this is so exciting. And but anyway, that was the first glimmer of how the of the history there. And then we, of course, at ILM, anybody who wanted to work on the movie, we all had all had to submit our portfolios too because George opened it up, kind of a national call. Some more portfolio submission. So we, you know, we didn't have any special privileges just because we were working at one of his companies. Uh, but then when I, you know, I, I, I'm going home and then Ben calls me and said, guess what, Terrell? Um, George wants you and I to be, be the Star Wars art department. And I went, ah! <laughs> <laughs> that's so, great. There you go. So that is, that's what, that's how that, that situation occurred. 
I love it. I love it so much. And and all these things that you're talking about, right? Viewing these creatures as, as real creatures and their anatomy and how many creatures they give birth to and everything like that really just established this world of especially the prequels yeah. in a way that felt grounded and real. And that's what I, I love. Yeah. And I'd love to just talk briefly about a few of the creations that really stuck out to me that you had such a, a part in okay. um, and maybe uh, talk about your process a little bit. Yeah. First, I'd love to kind of go planet to planet uh, because one of the things that really stands out to me and you kind of touched on it was like, of course, Doug Chang was a lot of the ships and a lot of the the look and feel of the aesthetic and Ian McKegg was a lot of the makeup and a lot of the costumes and you really were a lot of the aliens and a lot of that natural feel of, of the planets. Um, and so Naboo, of course, really stands out to me, especially in The Phantom Menace as a really full-fledged environment. Creatures that live in the sea, creatures that live on land, how they interact with each other. And it's really even just a part of that yeah. movie that, you know, they're all in, yeah. in, in a symbiotic relationship with each other. And without <laughs> incredible creature design, that would not be come across on the screen. So uh-huh. so with Naboo especially, one of the sequences that stands out to me, of course, are the monsters that attack them while they're underwater. Oh, yeah. And I know you had a, a, a big hand in that. What was it like uh, working through all of those designs and, and did any still stand out to you now? Uh, let's see. That was, that was a really interesting um, example of collaboration. Um, Doug Chang came up with some of the initial germs of some of the look and, look and feel of, I believe, of um, the OPC killer, which is almost this chimera of crustacean and angler fish. So right. he came up with his basic design and said, okay, Terrell, make this real for me. <laughs> I had to, you know, again, okay, this is going to, this is a real animal bath. This is going to be the museum and the Smithsonian. That's, I always took that kind of approach. And uh, so um, made it as realistic as possible. Um, designed the skeletons, designed the musculature as much as you can with combining fish musculature with invertebrate, which is a real chimera, but, you, you know, it's a fantasy, so to speak. Uh-huh. Uh, the um, um, Sando Aqua Monster was my favorite creature <laughs> that I, I probably have ever worked on because it's like the most biggest, hugest animal in the world can eat Godzilla for lunch. It's so big. It's, yeah. it's, it's like twice as long as five aircraft carriers. I mean, it's, <laughs> it doesn't care. It just wants you just happy where it is. Um, so that was my favorite one to work on. And it was really cool because um, we got the bat body shape and everything down and most of the anatomy. And, and I hadn't been dealing with it since it's underwater. This is my little scientific brain going on. Deep underwater and most deep underwater luminescent fish, animals, have very large eyes. I mean, giant sea squids. I mean, they have humongous mm-hmm. eyes and such. And so I gave this animal very large eyes. Mm-hmm. But... What Doug pointed out to me, let's make the sim even bigger. So let's make the eyes little, I mean, relatively small. Because even though even at that level, those eyes are still going to be really big, but relative to its body. And so that was something I learned from him. If you want to make an animal look super big, don't make the eyes super big. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was great. But that um, animal itself, um, I really enjoyed. It's a female, by the way. Uh-huh. It can eat anything it wants to. It's the it, she's the queen of the world, and I like that <laughs> whole idea of this yeah. underface, like this underwater tiger. You know, I want that snatch. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, the the Gungans too. Uh, probably one of your longest lasting legacy in terms of the d- design of Star Wars is, of course, Jar Jar, mm-hmm. and of, of the all that ecosystem. Uh, I yeah. love even the early designs uh, that you had of Jar Jar because. 
they've now been i think the highest honor in star wars especially design wise is mccory is always reused and revisited throughout these colin cantwell is always reused and visited and and all of your designs, I was reading through all these books, and even if they weren't used in Phantom Menace, they pop up again in Clone Wars or in Rebels or in Resistance because yeah. they feel yeah. Star Wars and they feel so grounded. What was the design process for Jar Jar and the Gungans like, and how did that evolve um, over time? Well, George would give us ideas. He would have an idea in mind of a personality, maybe maybe a vague body type. Then he'd let us go to town on creating things. So with Jar Jar, the parameters were this. Okay, he's this amphibious character. He's definitely not a human being. Don't worry about making a suit or anything for him. Um, he's tall and gangly. And he has a personality that's kind of a blend of Charlie Chaplin, Danny Kaye, and um, other famous comics, with slapstick, that sort of thing. He's got a good heart, but he, intent- but he more often than not puts his foot in his mouth. He doesn't mean to, and, and he tends to alienate his friends by actually sheer innocence. <laughs> he's, you know, it's sheer, sheer innocence. He wants to do well, but he just, you know, he's, he's like Charlie Brown. <laughs> he's just yeah. going to work out sometimes. So basically, both Doug, Doug and I kind of worked hard to kind of get a personality. And Doug came up with kind of an idea for a... Jar Jar looked like many different animals um, many different times. And then Doug came up with this idea, well, what about like a, um, like a duck-billed dinosaur type? And then he said, okay, Terrell, I've got this idea now. I've got, I have vehicles to do. You, you, right. like, you work out, work on this, okay. So I did. I thought, okay, let's see. What can I do about this animal here? So I, I will retain the hadrosaur-like face. Okay, that's great. <laughs> Now I go from here. And I thought, okay, let's do a long body. Let's give a nice, long, swan-like neck. Because um, hadrosaurs have long necks, but let's make it even, you know, maybe kind of a little more graceful. And let's put, like, this fin down his his neck and such. And um, dinosaurs, well, theropods have relatively, well, because hadrosaurs are not a theropod, but I was thinking, how can I make this not humanoid? Let's not really give him much of a waist. Let's make him very short-waisted, and let's make him have real long legs. But short thighs and long shins, that way he's going to be forced to walk differently than a person. And I was thinking in the back of my mind of how emus walk, how birds walk. If this animal has a slightly bird, and I interspersed the words animals with creatures, it's kind of like the same thing. Um, if this, if this alien is walking in kind of a vaguely bird-like aspect, he's not going to have a human way of walking. So that's good. Well, let's do that. And so he started taking shape that way. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about a, a year and a half of development. His George would come in and tweak a little bit, tweak a little bit there. But then I think the big change, and it wasn't that big a change. I had had like a long fin that he'd raise up and down on his back of his neck. George said, why don't we make that, instead of that, like a fin on his neck, make give him two, like, your ears that he can spin around, they can flop. And that oh. was, like, that was, okay, great. <laughs> so adding those ears, and then I did a nice portrait of him, kind of mm-hmm. like a little, very soulful, appealing, kind of, you know, kind of a cringe, like, well, did I just make another mistake with a little <laughs> 
And then George says, yep, there he goes. Wow. Uh, um, so that is what happened with Jar Jar. So Jar Jar, basically the combination of hadrosaur, his skin is the skin of an, a parrotfish coloration, but the skin of an amphibian, so there's no scales except for only on his ears. His, his thighs are shorter than his shin, so he walks in sort of a bird-like manner. And, the, and George had the um, idea of changing the, the fin on the back of his neck to two fins to be like ears. And that is how he came to be. I love it. I love it. And as a uh, seven-year-old who then went as Jar Jar for Halloween in 1999, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> I, I would love to talk about the process of then you, you turn this incredible sketch and this drawing that then is turned, let's say, Tony McVeigh takes it and makes it into a maquette or a sculpture, mm-hmm. and then you see the process go and make it a costume or make it a, a digital creature uh, that has to kind of carry the the feeling and the value that you put into that mm-hmm. initial animation. Uh, what was that like for you designing for something that would end up being so computer generated and did it impact any of the elements that you were putting into things? Um, so with the jar jar, to go to ILM for a production. Um, we had the maquette, but we also, um, I had to do his skeleton from the back I had to draw, draw his skeleton from the back, from the side, from the front. I had to do his muscular from the back, from the side, side to the front, and his surface in order so that they could use those as blueprints in, in addition to the maquette for exactly where did those joints articulate so they could rig the character and model the character. Because digital characters are basically digital marionettes that the animator will move, manipulate, as opposed to cell animation, which is a group of illustrations in sequence. Um, so that's that was this, the missing step that for him to actually go and be worked up. Um, but to answer um, the rest of your, your question is see him being developed, to see the um, the dailies is just an incredible experience. It's like seeing your child go to college and getting you to graduate. I think what I bring from that experience and what I think about is all the people in production that worked on him, their faces to make him possible. So I was at one part of his creation, but then you had a whole lot of other people that made him possible to, to exist and then to be seen by the audience and hopefully to be enjoyed, of course, depending upon what year you were born, I suppose, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I am so glad now that Jar Jar and Ahmed's work and, and all the, the effort that it took to put this creature that had literally never been done before yeah. in a movie, that, that type of long-standing, um, important major character that was all computer-generated. In the history of cinematography, he's very important. He was the first fully realized digital character to actually carry a movie. Yeah, I do love as well, this is slightly separate, but hopefully leading into the rest of the creatures you designed, but you mentioned the skin and the patterns on the skin uh-huh. for all of the creatures, whether it's Jar Jar or Sebulba or the mm-hmm. po- whatever it was, the Kadu, I think, mm-hmm. stands out in my mind because that's a Doug Chang yes. uh, thing, but then but your coloration and your, your patterning is so distinct and so just like immediately unique. I would love to talk just a little bit more about how you went through that process of defining what the colors would be for, let's say, a character on Naboo versus a character on Coruscant, 
uh, and then how you kind of did it. Because in my mind, the Jar Jar pattern, like on his arms, is so mm-hmm. distinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really, when I think of a Phantom Menace, I always just think of, of those colors and, and those oh. designs. <laughs> well, all my inspiration basically comes from nature, what exists on this planet. And there's just an, an, almost a nearly infinite variety of colors and patterns um, that exist out there. Uh, the way genetics work, I mean, even in domestic animals, let's say coloration of dogs or horses, there is just an infinite, almost infinite variety from, like if you take horses from zebras to thoroughbreds and pintos and palominos and all of that. And of course mm-hmm. dogs are, and then you take birds. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and the insects. I mean, it's a big fish. I mean, oh, the treasure box. So, but the first thing I thought about um, for each world was the environment, because the environment dictates the type of animals that can exist and thrive in that environment. So, um, with Naboo, you have several different biomes there. You have the swamp, and then you have the lush um, grasslands surrounding the city. And then you have the underwater core, and I'm sure there's many others that we haven't explored on Naboo. <laughs> but we'll have to leave that up to the to the um, young adult novelists there right. to flesh that out. But uh, so designing animals for the Naboo swamp, I thought about animals that live in swamps worldwide, uh, or at least in jungly type environments, and went from there in, in the more lush, beautiful parts of Naboo. Well, those you know, grassland animals, things like that. And so their colorations, things also have to reflect their environment. Is this animal or this you know, some of the antelope-type animals that come crashing in through in the, in the stampede scene, are their colorations going to let them survive into this, in the swamp to blend into the background? Because the, the, the ethos of Star Wars, of that universe is you want to feel, the reason it is so compelling is you feel you can go there. It's familiar. It's not that different from what we see here. If it's something, if, it, if a creature is so outlandish that you think, oh, gee, I have to journey all the way to, you know, Jupiter to go there, or I have to live in a magical universe of Harry Potter, which I know I really can't go to. But with Star Wars, there's always a, I think I could live there. I think I could go there. And, and that, so all those animals, they have to look like something you could actually see in a zoo here and relate to and, and have a relationship with. That really does bring up my next question, which is with Naboo especially, you're able to create a, a fully formed world because it was kind of a blank slate and, and mm-hmm. so many different biomes. But then when you move to, let's say, Tatooine, which was more of a hub of travelers and, and a desert environment yeah. to kind of go through your thought process, because a lot of the designs you did for the pod racers mm-hmm. um, had to be so varied. They all had to be visually distinct and they all had to kind of have their own personality within one second of seeing them. Absolutely. Yes. What was what was your thought process? How did you kind of go about that, especially? Well, the thing with um, Tatooine, what I thought about was trading cities in you know, Palestine or in the Middle East. When they say all roads lead to Mecca, you have travelers all over the place. And you think of like Marco Polo or silk merchants from Asia. You have Europeans going there, Greeks going there. You have, obviously, the Palestinian and the native 
um, um, Bedouin and Arab populations there. It's all very exotic. And if you have people from everywhere, I mean, even the Vikings, they ended up there too. Vikings ended up everywhere. And so you have, if you had all these dispersed civilizations congregating on this kind of wonderful um, Arabian Nights sort of desert place, even if it's kind of grimy and dirty and messy because that's real life, then, okay, well, then aliens um, from different planets that look like different sorts of animals could easily come in and, and be there without, without any problem. In a way, the analogy would be who framed Rod, Roger Rabbit? Mm-hmm. You have cartoon land. You have all these different types of aesthetics of animated characters, but because it's this sort of melting pot trading, well, like a convention, <laughs> it's, it's perfectly fine. There's the natives that actually are native to tattooing, like the Bonthas and Dubats and, and kind of these deserty type creatures. But then if you're coming from somewhere else, then it's okay to be reasonably exotic. Obviously, you can't be this crystalline entity or this being made of light or water because, well, you can live in Tatooine. <laughs> but a reasonably, you know, um, exotic creature, you, you can. And so that was great. And so basically George said to me, okay, we've got about 12 pilots here. Let's kind of do this Dr. Seuss thing and make them all different. <laughs> <laughs> and so I love Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Absolutely. I said, yeah, okay. And that's, that's kind of realistic Dr. Seuss, I guess you'd say. I love it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, George Lucas is really fun to work with. He's yeah. funny. I can only imagine. And then especially when you have a, a, a hero pod racer like Sebulba, was uh-huh. there any special considerations to make him especially distinct? Oh, yeah. Or uh, what was kind of the, the process there? Well, George said, and of course all the pod racers have to be kind of small because the pod, there's not much room in one of those vehicles. Right. Small light. Um, and he said, well, Sebulba is just this nasty person. He's just got a huge chip on his shoulder and he wants, but he wants to win. He's very competitive and just nasty person. Mm-hmm. And he's small and he drives with his hands and he walks on his feet. And he's kind of spidery. And that's all he gave me. I thought, uh-huh. okay, he had this really, really grumpy. And so I went, you know, it was a weekend after weekend of the Friday, Saturday after that, George gave me that assignment. Um, I went to the Oakland zoo, Oakland California zoo. They had gray animals there. I was walking around just saying, I think it's, he got some inspiration. My, my brain is a blank before this character. And then I walked, I started just kind of went to, up to the um, paddock where the dromedaries were. They had a drom, two dromedaries and a big, and a big two humpback and camel. I was watching the, the dromedaries in particular. And there were these huge, very you know elegant, but odd animals. And they looked so proud and to myself. What if I took the head and neck of that this very large, proud, arrogant animal and put him on this little spindly body? <laughs> uh, because you know, owls are known for, you know, spitting on you if they're displeased and being grumpy right. and proud at the same time. I said, let's play with that. So I did. Figured out the, 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 the body and balanced this kind of largest head and gave them some, you know, long, you know, fangs and things. Later on, we had to change the fangs to smaller teeth because the fangs were getting in the way of him talking. <laughs> but, uh, um, so I thought, oh, this is, this is fun. 
And they said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's kind of make him the color of this Easter egg, like a purple Easter egg with yellow spots just to, you know, make him more ridiculous. Uh-huh. So I think maybe this, maybe he's just kind of self-conscious too, you know, <laughs> and he's short, like really short. Uh-huh. So that is how Sebulba was designed. I went to the zoo, I looked at a camel, I thought, huh. <laughs> and he's, that's what he basically is. He's this kind of weird space camel um, with a big chip on his shoulder. And I, and I call him the anti-Jar Jar for mm-hmm. contrast. But the interesting thing was is that we're, Jar Jar took a year and a half to develop as far as drawing Sebulba, design Sebulba. That was an afternoon. Wow. George came in and saw and said, yep. I'm like, miracle. After the yeah. drawing, he's going to be in the movies. <laughs> I mean, speaking of your drawings and speaking of, of these creations, moving from Phantom Menace, uh, one of your your works in terms of legacy of what you've left with Star Wars is, I mean, the incredible wildlife book uh, oh, that yeah. you wrote. Uh, I was even paging through it last night just to to see it all again. And the amount of work within these pages is incredible and immense. What was it like putting this together, this field guide uh, <laughs> of, of a Star Wars universe? Um, and and you you did it with Bob Corral, but mm-hmm. your your illustrations and your work is just so immense in this. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that process and and designing that. Well, working on that book felt like working very much working on the on the movie, except that instead of you know about two and a half years, three years, I had only one year. Wow! <laughs> it was my life doing this book, right? And was incorporating all the creatures to date um, that existed in all the Star Wars movies, from Macquarie's inventions to the ones that we created, including, and this is very important, we wanted to include them, all the creatures that didn't make it into the movie. Mm-hmm. Because there was so much work, and we wanted to see them have a live day. And I think George was also thinking, "Well, hmm, I can use these for later." And and which which he did, you know, whether it's in his subsequent movies or the Clone Wars or whoever, whatever else is coming up, you know, from Disney. You right. know, yeah, got this bank of creatures here. Right. And uh, so that was that was really fun, and it was fun making up the natural histories behind all of them. You know, I, the stuff that's in like Wikipedia, you look up the Bantha and this mystical, mystical relationship between the Banthas and the, the sand people. I made that up. Yeah, no, I love it. And so all the stuff that has to do with the animals, I made it up. Um, we ran it past George. He put his okay on it. And then Bob Crow took that and put it into really nice prose. So yeah. that's how that works. So all these giant space slugs, Gungans, whatever else is in there, I... I and I just made that up. I love it. George put a stamp on it, and so you know, there we go. I mean, I, I really though, it does show just <laughs> such an understanding, and this entire conversation is an example of that of how much you understand what makes Star Wars feel like Star Wars, and even the like what you were saying, the Banthas and the Sand People having that connection, and then the Mates having that connection, and if a Sand mm-hmm. person has a boy, then the Bantha yeah. will also have a boy. You know, like. Yeah. It just all feels so intertwined and so perfect with Star Wars, and uh, it really is. Like you were saying, Wikipedia based the entire <laughs> website on this book, pretty much, and your legacy is so important to what we view as Star Wars now. <laughs> so I, I appreciate it. Uh, now, especially with your focus on teaching and this next generation, I'd love to kind of end our conversation with 
you know, any words of advice or inspiration you might have for people that love your work and, and want to do something creative uh, and maybe are feeling stuck or feeling isolated, especially right now, is there oh, yeah. anything that you would recommend or anything that, uh, in terms of words of affirmation that you might have? Well, the most important thing is particularly if you are well, specifically with a creature design, but for creativity, the first, the, the most important thing is, is that as a human being, we are not infinite. We are fallible. We don't have all the answers. We certainly don't have all the answers to creativity. We're limited. And so what you have to do, at least what I have to do, is to go outside and experience the world, experience nature, see things for yourself. It doesn't mean, you. oh, gee, I, I can't afford to go to Africa. I can't afford to go to the Antarctic. Look around you. Even if you were living in Brooklyn, there are animals there. I mean, you can look. That's, okay, Coruscant. There we go. There's insects. There's obviously people's pets. You've got birds. Um, they're there. And you can go to the zoo. You can go to the museum. Oh, gee, it's, you know, it's really rainy and all that. Um, of course, zoo and museum, it's, it's the, the pandemic. Uh, well, that's for when the pandemic's over. <laughs> but at least go outside. Mm -hmm. So practice social distancing, of course. But there's also, okay, um, what about all the work that David Attenborough did? All those nature series. Go to PBS. Make great use of PBS. <laughs> that's a great, you know, sec good treasure box, too. Not only for science and nature, but good storytelling, I mean, masterpiece theater, or documentaries, all of that sort of thing um, is what goes into building a world, world building. Star Wars is a wonderful example of world building. You've got the natural environment. You've got different civilizations. You have um, trade. You have warfare. You have politics diseases, you've got religion, all of that is, is stuff you need to learn. I mean, there's stories, legends within that particular legend. So as much as you can expand your basic knowledge of this world, the history of this world, whether it's human history, whether it's geologic history, whether it's zoology, um, other parts of science. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things going on in quantum mechanics and physics. In my zoo major, we had, we touched on, you know, we, we have different prerequisites you have to study, you know, physics and chemistry and such. And we spent some time, you know, at that point, and that was, you know, 30 years ago, talking about the advances in quantum physics and mechanics. And now there's even more so. That's kind of where science crosses the line with spirituality. It's so, so exciting and weird. So that's very Star Warsian. All that sort of stuff. I mean, if you're alone in your apartment, your house, go outside and look at PBS. <laughs> it's I mean, two very practical things you can do. Mrs. Whitlatch, thank you for, for taking the time and talking and, and thank you for everything you've done, like you were saying, for the world building of Star Wars and, and adding so much to the universe that we love. So I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure.
So yeah, I don't think I've gushed in an interview like this before, but please correct me if I'm wrong there. And I just want to thank Miss Whitlatch again for the incredible interview. In the upcoming episodes, we'll have Disney Imagineering Scott Trowbridge, as well as Masioka, who you might know as Hero from Heroes, but also worked at ILM during the prequels. I've teased quite a few more guests on our Talking Bay Twitter and Instagram accounts, so follow there to stay up to date. It is so appreciated. If right after this interview ends, you can go to the app where you're listening and leave a five-star rating and a review. Until next Wednesday, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.